Before I begin this morning, I just want to express my gratitude to you. Uh, it's such a blessing for me to have the privilege of preaching God's Word to people that are hungry to hear it and whose hearts are open to the Lord and to what His Word says. So uh, as I look back on this year and head into a new year, I'm just grateful, grateful for this privilege. Now we've been going through Second Corinthians. We took a break for Advent. We'll be back in it next Sunday in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. However, today I'm going to preach a New Year's sermon. And when we do go back to 2 Corinthians, about once a month I'm going to try to, do, to preach a sermon on a different subject just to add a little variety so that we, it doesn't become tedious to us to go through a book and take so long. Today we're in Luke chapter 10. Verses 17 to 20. This is the end of the story where Jesus sends out his 72 of his followers. And then they come back. It says, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. Subject in your name. Subject, sorry are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are are written in heaven. Now we know that demons are fallen angels. God created them as angels and they fell, they rebelled against the Lord. And so they're much greater than we are in power, in knowledge, in cleverness. At the beginning of this story, as he was sending them out, Jesus gave his disciples the power to cast demons out of those who had been inhabited by them. In the beginning of Luke, he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So here, inferior beings being given power over superior beings. And, of course, in ourselves, we don't stand a chance against demons. So the ability being given us to cast demons out is quite an amazing ability. It's far greater than the ability God gave David, for instance, to conquer Goliath. A much smaller gap between David and Goliath than there is between any one of us and demons. Now Jesus says in the end here, this verse 20, don't rejoice in this, however, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's talk about what that means. 
Now, God knows everything. He even knows each sparrow, each spider, each snake. He certainly knows each person. In fact, he knows every hair on every one of the heads of every individual person. But even though all people are equally known by God, equally made in his image, and equal and even though all people are equally in sin and equally deserving of God's wrath, there is a sense in which people are not equal in the mind of God because some people are destined for salvation and some people are not destined for salvation. It is this first group, those who are destined for salvation, that Jesus has in mind in Luke 10.20 when he refers to those whose names are written in heaven. There is a sense in which all men are the objects of the love of God. But there's another sense in which the people destined for salvation are the special objects of his love. Not because of anything they have done. They are not because they're somehow better than the others, but because of what Christ has done. Because of God's grace in Jesus. And that's the gospel. You know, Christmas time, whether we like it or not, we hear a lot of songs about Santa Claus. He's making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice. And that's the natural way that people think. Nice people get rewarded, naughty people get unrewarded or don't get rewarded. The problem with this kind of thinking is that actually there aren't any truly good people. All people are sinful and corrupt, even the ones who don't look bad on the outside. All have turned aside. Together they have become unworthy. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3.12 So no one can be saved by human performance. But now through Christ, a way has been revealed apart from human performance. It is a salvation through Christ's obedience, through his atoning death on the cross. And it comes to us as a free gift of God's grace. Paul explains this and unpacks it in Romans 3, 10 to 26, if you'd like to read more. And the names of those who obtain this salvation through Christ are said to be written in heaven, or in other places, written in the book of life. Now, there are a number of lessons that we can learn from this little interaction that Jesus has with his disciples here. For instance, the passage implies both the assurance of salvation and the perseverance of the saints. For instance, for example, how can your ultimate source of joy be in the fact that your name is written in heaven if you're not sure that your name is written in heaven? And 
How can your ultimate source of joy be in the fact that your name is written in heaven if you're not sure that your name will be written in heaven when, the, when it really counts on the last day? We can also see in this passage why God allows his people to fail and to suffer. If it was easy for the disciples to misplace their happiness when they had one short season of success, imagine how hard it would be for all of us to misplace our happiness if our lives were one long series of successes. You see, success can easily cause us to stumble. And God could give us success with a snap of a finger if he deemed it good. He could take away our problems, he could grant us repeated success, and we'd be happy. But he doesn't, not in this life. The reason our problems exist is not because he is not strong enough to remove them, Not because he doesn't care enough about us. Our problems exist solely because he loves us. And is therefore determined to do what is best for us. And in his perfect wisdom and knowledge, he has called forth our problems to serve our best interests. We see that even with the disciples. Because later on, remember, there was a time... After, you know, they're going around casting out demons, thinking so highly of themselves, and one time it didn't work. They had a lesson to learn from their failure. But the main lesson here in this passage has to do with the proper location of our greatest joy. The proper location of our greatest joy. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says that Christians shouldn't grieve when loved ones are lost, when loved ones die, in the same way that the people of the world, the non-believers, grieve when their loved ones die. We still grieve, of course, that's not the issue, but we don't grieve like the rest of the world. Why? Because we have hope. Because we have the promise of eternal life. So though we miss our loved ones and feel their loss, our grief is tempered by a bigger reality. Well, we don't grieve like the world, but we also don't rejoice like the world. Happy things happen to us, just like to non-believers. But just as our grief is tempered by a bigger reality, so our joy must be tempered by a bigger reality. That's what Jesus is saying here when he says, Do not rejoice that evil spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I read a story a little while back about a man and a woman who went into an appointment with an oncologist, a cancer doctor, and uh, where they heard from from his doctor a very grim prognosis. He didn't have long in this world. And they were 
stunned and shocked by the news, of course, and went out in silence, and went out and sat in the car in silence for several minutes before anyone said anything. And in the end, the husband said, Nothing has changed. We knew that one day we would both die. We knew that it was likely that we would be separated one day by death. We knew that our real life is not here on this earth, but with Christ in heaven. Nothing has changed. Remembering the greater realities is the key to not being governed by our circumstances. The privilege of having our names written in the book of life is so great that it outshines our greatest pleasures and our greatest sorrows as well. Everything else is second. And this is one of the most important things for every believer to realize. Everything else is second. That's why when good or bad things happen, we need to ask ourselves, what is really the big thing here? The thing we must always remember is that Christ's grace for us is always the big thing here. It's bigger than our biggest foe. It's bigger than our biggest disappointment. It's bigger than our biggest success. So whatever we're looking at, whatever we're facing, whatever we're experiencing, it's not a big deal compared to having our names written in the book of life. Notice that Jesus doesn't trivialize the secondary things. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. He reaffirms the legitimacy of their joy in watching the power being demonstrated over the evil spirits. He acknowledges the significance of their experience, even rejoicing with them. But then he goes on to remind them that however significant this experience may have been, there's something more important, more significant, more magnificent. This is so different from the way the world thinks. The world says, what do we have but our lives? We only have but one life to live. And we're tempted to have the same kind of attitude. But to his people, Christ says, no, no, no. You have something bigger than your life. You have me. You have my love for you. My loving kindness is better than life. And when we grasp what a treasure we have in Christ, we say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
And then we're not only ready to discount our worst failures and our hardest trials, we're ready to discount our greatest successes and our most prized achievements. This has a special relevance to those who, like the disciples, are in ministry. It's very easy to gain, when you're in ministry, to gain your joy and identity from ministry success instead of from the gospel. Our joy must be in the work God does through us less than in the work God God does for us. Church history, of course, is the story of ebbs and flows of kingdom growth. In God's providence, sometimes the gospel advances, and it is so exciting. When I was in college, I worked in youth ministry at our church. In my junior year, while I was working with ninth graders, God began to move in just such an amazing way in the lives of those kids. Kids were becoming Christians left and right. A number of them from prominent Washington, D.C. families. It was really cool. And then in my senior year, I worked with college ministry. And then after I graduated, I got hired by the church to work with the junior high again. And I expected to pick up right where I left off. But in spite of all my efforts, nothing much happened. Little did I know that the original revival was not a result of my impressive ministry talents after all. Unfortunately, I've had to learn the lesson over and over again. 20 years ago, when we had 350 people in this church and the room couldn't hold everyone so we had to go to two services I was feeling pretty good about myself and boy was it easy to put my joy and my identity in ministry success and boy was it easy to look at those who weren't being as successful And think that they were second rate. I see now how desperately I needed to be pruned. I love that passage where Jesus talks about in John 15. You know, I'm the fruit and and my father prunes those that they might bear more fruit. I needed to be pruned. It's not wrong. To be saddened by setbacks in the growth of Christ's kingdom. It's not wrong to rejoice over kingdom successes. However, however, these things are always secondary. And our emotional life must always be stabilized by the biggest and most important reality. That our names are written In the Lamb's book of life. On account of what Christ has done. 
As we look forward to a new year, none of us know what's going to happen in 2019. But we can presume that if the Lord allows us to tarry a while, we're going to experience in 2019, each of us, some successes and some failures, some triumphs and some defeats. And we need to go into the new year recognizing the danger of each to throw us off track. Now many of us are aware of the fact that losses and failures and tragedies can throw us for a loop. I think we're more susceptible to being deceived by successes. We see it in others, how success ruins them, how it goes to their heads. We're very conscious of that concept, but when it comes to us, sometimes we don't realize how susceptible we are to dangerous temptations when blessings and successes come our way. It's easy to rejoice in or put our identity in the wrong thing. Setbacks and accomplishments both must be tempered by the truth of what God has done for us in Christ. In other words, we need to keep the big picture in mind. The big picture is that though we're in the midst of a cosmic struggle, God has his hands on us. And nothing can separate us from his love. And no one can snatch us out of his hand. We can put our absolute trust in his promises of salvation. In his promises of deliverance. In his promises of glory. In his promises of victory. In his promises that one day we will see him face to face. And in his promises that we will dwell with him forever. Martin Luther said, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And now, we come to the Lord's table. Our final celebration of the year of what Christ has done for us upon the cross in this sacramental way. Where we observe what someone else does. The bread is broken. The blood is poured. But it's done for us. And then we participate by taking that, the results of that, unto ourselves and digesting it and saying yes to it and welcoming it and receiving it. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, you have enriched us beyond our ability to comprehend. 
What we have before us, dear Lord, is a great treasure. One that we will not fully appreciate until our sin is removed and we see things as they really are. But now, dear Lord, we want to we know that you call us, even though we can't appreciate these things fully, to appreciate them truly. And we do, O oh Lord. And we give you great gratitude. We give you our praise. And we pray, Lord, that as we partake, that we would be receiving Christ himself in our hearts. We pray in him, his name. Amen.